Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Welcome to the first episode of season two. Who are you going to tell me about today, Karen? Today, we're going to talk about Robert Baden-Powell. He was a spy, and this is his story. Robert was born February 22, 1857, in Paddington, London, to the Reverend Baden-Powell and Henrietta Grace Powell. Robert was the eighth of ten children, all boys and one girl. You know that had to be a spoiled little girl. Yes, it was. Reverend Powell was an Oxford professor who passed away when Robert was only three years old. Although the boy didn't get to spend much physical time with his father, the man still impacted his son in countless ways. Reverend Powell was a naturalist, and he spent time taking his children on long walks, glorying in the world around them. He taught the kids to identify trees and insects. He taught them about tracking and taught them to seek adventure. He gave them a thirst for knowledge and the confidence to quench that thirst. Robert's mother, Henrietta, she came from a military home where her father was an officer in the Navy. She operated her home with the same efficiency and discipline that she was raised with. The foundation on which Robert built his life was balanced and healthy. Although the children were expected to behave, they were also given autonomy to amuse themselves, which they did with great fervor. The age range between siblings was vast, and the older kids took it upon themselves to mentor the younger. One of Robert's older brothers, Warrington, 10 years older than Robert, was a British naval officer. When he came home from a trip, he would spend his time teaching his younger siblings what he learned. Warrington even designed a yacht and showed his brothers how to man the vessel. They took the boat out to sea for weeks at a time. And at one point, they found themselves out to sea during a really perilous storm. The boys worked feverishly day and night, and they finally made it home safe and sound. But the boat didn't fare as well. Despite his younger brother's tender age, Warrington was really impressed with Robert's skill and resourcefulness. On vacations, Robert and his siblings would visit Yandago Falls, the property of an Italian newspaper correspondent. The man would regale Robert with stories of intrigue and espionage. Also, while he was visiting there, Robert learned to tame and ride wild ponies. That, that probably was not easy. <laughs> and would wander the land, befriending the natives and learning little-known secrets of the local flora and fauna. Once he began school, Robert began going by BP for Baden-Powell, and he was really popular. The plucky boy was known as an avid footballer and would play the sport with unbridled passion, often being the loudest and most enthusiastic player on the field. And when we say football, we mean... We mean soccer. That's right. Basically, BP would act so crazy that the other team was afraid of what he might do. But he would settle down if he was in the role of goalkeeper. Weren't you a goalie? Didn't you tell me that once? I was actually a goalie for a long time, yes. And yeah. that's that's odd because I would think that he would be more a little crazier being in goal than on the field. Right. Well, when he would take the goalie position, P 
people said that he was very dependable and cool-headed. But soccer wasn't his only sport. He was also taken with cricket and racquetball. BP also had a love for fine arts. He heartily lent his voice to the school choir, and he would star in almost every theatrical performance that the school would produce. Despite all the activities that Baden-Powell was known for, the thing that defined him was the ability to make others laugh. Wherever peals of laughter would ring out on campus, Robert would be found in the center of it. Although he could be silly, he was also a serious student. Despite his propensity to reduce a classroom to fits of laughter, his teachers still adored him. Another one of BP's skills was sketching, especially left-handed sketching. Okay, this guy's a lot like you. Well, he can do things. He's an ambidextrous person. Right. Aren't you left-handed? He's a goalie. Yeah. I'm le- well, I think that he did a lot of left-handed sketching, but he was right-handed. No, he was left-handed, but oh, he, okay. yeah, he was able to do both. But um, he was just really, really good at left-handed sketching. Okay, I'm not good at sketching, no. Well, the only thing we have in common is we're like 11 percent of the population. Well, there you go. Left-handed, yeah. Well. Robert was especially good at map making, and he would sketch detailed land maps from memory. So with all of his natural talent, Robert's first plan was to attend Oxford like his dad. But a family friend talked him into Christ Church College. However, just before beginning class, on just a whim, BP decided to take an army examination for fun. He's just like, eh, I'll try it, Let's, whatever. Yeah. How hard could it be? How hard could it be? The Army was so impressed with him that they offered him a two-year commission advancement. And so, they eventually persuaded him to become a soldier. Soldiering wasn't really something that he had considered before, but Robert always wanted to travel. And he thought working for the Army would give him that opportunity. So, on September 11th, 1876, Baden-Powell joined the 13th Hoosers in India. That's right, and the 13th Hoosers were originally called the 13th Light Dragoons. Do you know what a dragoon is, Karen? I think I do, Chuck. A dragoon is a really boring body of water separated from the ocean by a reef. Is that correct? As opposed to a lagoon, which is a cool one. A yeah. dragoon is a boy. Okay. I see <laughs> right. where It's there. a drag. Okay. That was a really see, bad joke. That was terrible. You it know was, what? <laughs> that was terrible. But yeah. you know what? It really wouldn't be a spy stories if you didn't have one really bad joke in there. That's true. That's true. Well, I actually do know they dragoons were heavily armed cavalry brigades. So despite my bad joke, I do know what it is. You are correct, Karen. Now, the 13th Light Dragoon's history is kind of interesting. Although they date even farther back, Britain sent the Dragoons over to Jamaica to help displace the Spanish so that they could take over. As Spanish households dissolved, many native slaves formed up communities in the mountains. Although the British felt that they had the people under control, a revolt broke out called the Maroon War. Now, that's as opposed to, I, I would think, is that blue and yellow? What makes maroon? Red and something? I, I don't know I, my colors. No, <laughs> right, blue and yellow makes blind. green. 
Yeah. It's definitely not blue. <laughs> See, I tr- look what happens when I try to make a joke. Usually my jokes are good. Well, a colorblind person should probably not make a joke about color. Yeah, we should probably but... stick to our strengths. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, we have this macaroon war here. And the native people, under a very clever and powerful leader, Captain Cujo. I think it's probably Cudjo, but Cujo is way more fun to say. But I like Cujo. Yeah. yeah. He <laughs> later died of rabies. Oh, but, my uh, word. He, for- he formed a battalion and a bloody battle ensued. Now, the war ended in a stalemate with the British government offering peace treaties. Those treaties were in place for a while, but about 50 years later, there was a second maroon war, a deeper maroon war, <laughs> almost a... The first one was more of a chartreuse war, but this was the really serious Maroon War. Now, this ended in the Maroon Surrender. Now, overall, the 13th Dragoons were involved the Peninsular War, Waterloo, the Crimean War, the Second Boer War, and the First World War. See, you tried to trip me up with that World War thing. I've been practicing that between seasons, yes. The name was changed from Dragoons to Hussars in 1922, Karen. Well, BP ended up just as popular in the military as he'd been in school. But this time in his life, instead of making everybody around him happy, he got to make himself happy as he joyfully explored a land that always fascinated him. It's really kind of interesting. To the untrained eye, Robert would have been classified an extrovert, but that's really because he was emotionally intelligent and he was a really good actor. And when I say actor, like he would perform for people, but it wasn't like a malignant thing. It wasn't um, super manipulative. It was that he was taking on a different persona that was really confident because he didn't actually always feel so confident. In fact, deep down, BP was very shy and despite his immense talent, was very humble. He devoted himself to learning all he could about his job. He became an excellent shot. During this time in his life, he also became an avid hunter. Most of his big game kills were out of necessity. BP's first major kill happened while in the middle of the Matable War, a war which saw the British South Africa Company battling the kingdom that's modern-day Zimbabwe. And I may be massacring these words, I'm sorry. (laughs) But the war ended with the dissolution of the African kingdom. BP and a local were scouting outside of Wedza in the dead of night when he lit a match to survey his surroundings. The light revealed a lion's spore which apparently means a trail of footprints. Did you know that? I did, actually. Mm, Well, I didn't. They gingerly traced the prints, trying to discern the location of the lion. See, that's where they went wrong. When you see them, (laughs) whatever direction the the little paw prints are heading in, you head in the other direction. (laughs) Don't follow the paw prints. I think that they were looking at the prints to try to figure out where it was. But BP noticed movement in a nearby bush. He drew his gun just as the lion leapt at him, and he shot the lion, killing him just in time to spare his own life and the life of his companion. Now, during that same campaign, BP found himself up against a wild boar. And he thought this was pretty thrilling, so he ended up starting the sport of boar hunting. 
Now, you're an avid boar hunter, right? <laughs> I am an avid boar avoider. Uh, we have wild boar up <laughs> Which here. means you ignore me a lot. <laughs> yes. No, no. No, we have boar up here, and these guys, these are serious, serious animals. Um, they're one of the... Right. They're one of the widest-ranging mammals, and it, they're considered an invasive species anywhere they're at because they just take over everything. And they've gotten so bad down in Texas, um, they use, well, not automatic weapons, but, you know, in helicopters to try to just thin the population because they will just take over thousands of acres and just destroy everything in their path. So they just shoot from helicopters? Yeah, I mean, they're, it's not hunting. It's not sport. Wow. They're trying to, you know, just right. eliminate the population. They host at right. least 20 parasitic worms, including ones that can infect humans, Karen. See, this is where I think that it is not a good idea. You know, um, people are like, well, you can eat the wild boar meat. No. Well, I think they I mean, cook it pretty not good. not with yeah. 20 parasitic worms. Yeah, I would never feel comfortable. With I, that. I've heard it's not very good. But, it's not the same as hogs. Yeah. Well. And just to be clear, you don't actually boar hunt. <laughs> no, right? me? No, no, yeah. no. I stay as far right, as wild boars as I can. I um, had to wrestle one one <laughs> okay. time. I ran into one walking Rudy oh. in the woods, but you know, but right, I don't. You hunt don't for hunt boar. You wrestle them with I your bare hands. I just grabbed him by the tusk right. and said, "Look, you know, I'm just trying to walk my dog here." You can go about your business. I can go about mine, or we can make this a thing. And the wild boar went on his way. So, right. But you didn't slap him like you do geese. No, no, because he didn't peck me. <laughs> oh, well. Now, there you even go. though wild boar attacks on humans are fairly rare, these animals are incredibly violent. Now, the way the boar attacks is by pointing its tusks right at the thighs. And trying to stab you right in the thighs. Now, hopefully they get you in the thigh and not a little to the left. Uh, because that would be really boorish behavior. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> see that I nailed one. Anyway. <laughs> so, so did, did the, the boar. <laughs> yeah. Well, after the boar's first attack, it'll pause and watch and see if the victim moves at all. If there's any movement, it'll continue to just keep stabbing until the victim's totally still. Now, wow. what you hear about bears is just curl up in a ball and this bear will leave you alone, right? Well, the mm. boar is waiting to see if you're going to stay still so it can eat you. So don't curl up in a ball and be still. It's just going to come up and eat you. Right. There's just no way to win. If you're at that point... In the wild boar situation, you just need to you say your prayers and just yeah, and plan to go. But the reason that, you know, they're thrilling for people is that, they, um, that they're dangerous. They're hard to take down. Mm -hmm. They're not very big. You know, a lion's mm -hmm. very big. A lion doesn't have that right. thick skin. It doesn't have the thick skull. Um, and right. a lion would rather, you know, a person shooting at it would rather run. Boars would mm -hmm. rather chase you and eat you. So, <laughs> right, right. It's really challenging right. but doable. Yeah, <laughs> I guess is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Well, in his memoirs, Baden Powell recounted coming upon a, a really nasty confrontation between a tiger and a wild boar. So, who do you think won that one? I would say BP won that one. 
<laughs> yeah, because he yeah. wasn't the one confronting him. I would him. say, That's yeah, true. I would say BP won that one. If he was just watching it, he was the winner. <laughs> well, actually, they it was a draw. They both dealt each other a final blow and died at the same time. Well, that was quite Shakespearean so, of them. <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. Well, because BP was a commander, he wasn't able to spend all his time in the field like he would have liked to. He had to tend to his duties, and he did that very well. You have to tend to your duties. We all have to do that. I don't think any of us like it. But when it came to younger troops, Robert assumed the role that his elder brother Warrington had. He encouraged the younger men to be their best in every situation. He even wrote a little small handbook for his troops with notes on field work and scouting. BP's skills as a scout were truly astounding. So while he was in a mission in Africa, he noticed a leaf on the ground. There were no trees near, but he knew that trees with the same leaves grew in a village 15 miles away. So, upon further inspection, he noticed trace footprint impressions going from the leaf in the direction of the village. So, he picked up the leaf and he smelled it, and it smelled like beer. From this, he surmised that, like the custom, women had been carrying pots of beer on their heads and the basin cracks were stopped with leaves. One of these leaves had fallen, and this indicated that the wind had been blowing. I mean, he's just coming up with all of this. At the time of his observations, there was no wind, but BP remembered that there had been a strong wind several hours prior. So... Using all that information, he created a timetable that told him when the men of the village would be drunk with beer. Because the beer would sour quickly. It was consumed immediately. So if, when they were drunk, they would be unaware of any trespassers of the village. So it you, was not an IPA that they were drinking. <laughs> right. That, do you know what an IPA is, Karen? I do. Yes. What is it? I don't know what it stands for, but I know what it is. It stands for... India Pale Ale. Oh, I did know that. I did know that. And it was made to hold up over long journeys across the sea. Oh, well, I did not know that. Thank you for that information, Chuck. That's that's what IPAs are. They (laughs) have a certain mixture of hops or whatever that make them not sour. I know that I have had them. I just didn't know all that. I know that. I think you probably had a couple before this show. I did. I did not. Well... Because of that, BP and a couple of his men stole into the village and gathered information undetected. Here's what I don't understand about that story. I think it's amazing. I mean, this guy's basically Sherlock Holmes, right? But there were women in the village. I mean, the men were drunk. (laughs) What were the women doing? Carrying the beer, serving the beer. (laughs) But they saw the trespassers in the village. I mean... I don't know. Anyway, despite his success as a soldier, Robert didn't give up on his love of theater. He even put on a performance of the Pirates of Penzance after the Siege of Kandahar. And when I say he... Does that strike you as odd? (laughs) It's a little odd. (laughs) When I say he put the the whole thing on, he, he was in charge of everything from stagecraft to costuming and he put on the show this was it it is a little weird but he put it on to try to calm the war-torn city and it turns out that the production was a wild success so i i guess it worked 
I mean, you just go from hunting lions to being in the theater. I, I don't, well. Well, you said that he, it was Shakespearean. He's a renaissance man. Yeah, I guess it's true. <laughs> he sees all this Shakespearean wildlife and he decides, I'm going to take theater to war-torn yeah. Kandahar. So although BP was kind of a golden boy, he wasn't always perfect. And he made some pretty dumb mistakes. One of those weak moments occurred shortly after the very well-received Pirates of Penzance. Robert picked up a pistol that he thought was empty, and he started spinning it mindlessly. Which, listeners, it is probably not good to mindlessly spin a gun. That's your your, your helpful tip for the day. He quickly discovered it was not so empty when a bullet lodged itself into his calf. How many shows are we going to do where a spy shoots himself in the leg? I know. I Is know. that, I mean, do you, when you decide on subjects, do you like <laughs> type in Google wooden leg spy? Each time. <laughs> I'm surprised by it. He, he kept his leg. It just caused a little bit of an injury. So he didn't have a prosthetic <laughs> leg or a wooden leg. Um, one of the few He didn't spy- lose the leg, but he did get the, the limb. I think it was a so. requirement of spying, but Lisbon and the leg. Yeah. Like, I think yeah, that... Lisbon and legs. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That should, we should make a book. Spies, Lisbon oh, and legs. Lisbon and legs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, all in all, he recovered from the injury fairly well. And in a twist of irony, I think his friends did this to him on purpose. Upon returning from Kandar, Baden-Powell was appointed musketry inspector (laughs) (laughs) yeah see that's irony so no he did not recover that's there's some things you just never recover from karen well and when you're in the military and shoot yourself in the leg it's hard to overcome they they make sure you never forget it (laughs) right yeah well despite the humor behind the post he performed his duties with excellence he was known for his unorthodox training methods He created units under a leader who would grant specially designed badges to soldiers whose work was worthy of distinction. And the first badge insignia was the North Compass. So I think you see where this is going here. I think I do. BP's intimate familiarity with nature made him an excellent intelligence agent for the military. In one of his books, BP recalled this story. My mission was to gather information from an encampment on a mountain peak known as Wolf's Tooth. I waited until the cover of night and began the difficult task of climbing the mountainside with nothing but moonlight to guide me on my journey. One of the most difficult obstacles for me was the fact that there was only one road going up the mountains. So any place I stopped to rest meant possible discovery. Finally, as dawn began to peek over the horizon. Is this guy, is he like doing a Faulkner novel here? What's he doing here? It's not more (laughs) a journal. I settled onto a knoll that I discovered made an excellent observation point. Unfortunately, sentries did sense my presence as sentries are wont to do, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) And as they moved towards me, I had to think quickly. As spies do. I always kept a sketchbook with me, both for field observation and to embed intelligence within natural diagrams. So I pulled it out and rapidly began mapping the area I had been traversing. 
When the guards confronted me, I showed them my sketches and requested to continue my work. The soldiers, in an attempt to exert their authority, began to talk about the importance of their objective. The more disinterested I seemed, <laughs> the more information flowed forth from the sentry. It had ended up being a wildly successful mission. It was like those guys at uh, Hercules Mulligan. Right. Right. The British guys that would come into his place yeah, and the, get all liquored up when they were getting sued. And they were just telling him all about their, yeah, all about <laughs> yeah. the mission. Or, and unlike John Andre or, um, no, Nathan Hale, Nathan who was Hale. like, dude, you're a spy too. You're a spy too. Yes. Sweet. I'm a spy. I'm a spy. Not for your side, but oh, my, my bad. I'm not a spy. Yeah. No. BP was a little bit, um, he, he, he was a little bit more discerning in that regard. He was. But he was. We it, don't mean to badmouth Nathan No, Hale, no, but it, he, he was He did just, just everything wrong. If there was a guidebook, right. how, how not to be a spy, it was Nathan Hale. And John Andre, bless their hearts. <laughs> I mean, literally, how not, to, what not to do. Anyway. Yeah. And, and, and they were actually such smart men. They were, and they were such good men. Such smart and accomplished so men. We're not putting them down. It's just they weren't they weren't good spies. Another example that uh, BP had of just how his quick thinking, while in a garrison town in Germany, he was gathering intel on a new machine gun. So in order to achieve his goal, he first set up his cover. He traveled to the area a couple of days prior to the date of the arms testing, and he established himself as a good time guy. He visited local pubs and made sure everybody saw him. And when they did, he made sure he had plenty of liquor in his hands. So when the day finally arrived, he sauntered into the range area, found a good place and laid down and pretended to sleep. Now, Chuck, you know what he was actually doing here, right? I do know what he was doing. What was he, he, doing? Was, he was seeing how fast the machine gun fired. Exactly. He was listening to the shot speed and listening for how many hits there were on the iron target. Eventually, BP heard footsteps. And as the soldiers drew near, he didn't take out his sketchbook this time. He took a flask out from his pocket and poured the alcohol all over himself. And then he began stuttering and acting like a complete fool. Because he'd already developed a reputation as a heavy drinker, it was accepted that BP was just an alcoholic who'd wandered too far, <laughs> gotten tired, started to nap. So he was just sent away with an amused warning. Now, there were many times Robert Baden-Powell narrowly escaped death. Other than the lion incident, there was a situation where a native guide excitedly informed BP that a bullet fired at them actually zoomed right between BP's ear and his scalp. Wow. It's like the Matrix. Now I want you to think that over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm calling shenanigans on the native guide here. Okay. <laughs> because if a bullet goes between my scalp and my ear, I think I'm going to feel it more, more likely than he's going to actually see it. Well, I guess it depends on how big your ears are. You'd have to have pretty big ears. But, I mean, so, I mean, I don't know. I, I just find it hard to believe. You that call it's shenanigans. Like the guys, huh? I do call shenanigans. Yeah, it's like right. the guys who catch the bullet in their teeth. Yeah. You know, the guys. That, I, I don't believe that one either. Well. Well, once while marching beside a mule battery armed with a carbine <laughs> strapped to its pack straddle, 
Someone left the carbine loaded and cocked. And the first time the mule brushed past foliage, the carbine fired. BP later joked about the incident. Many a man has nearly been shot by an ass, but I claim to have been nearly shot by a mule. <laughs> There's so much wrong with that story. And I <laughs> feel so is. bad for the poor mule. It's... It, Oh, you have to. I mean, you just have to. The mule had to be just thinking, what? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I just. But it was just how does walking that even along. Yeah. And it doesn't say who did it. You know, I mean, BP was already <laughs> known for maybe not. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if, he, if that would have hit him in the leg, <laughs> it would have just been too. Hit him in the other leg. <laughs> right. Right. Well. He was also really creative when it came to ciphers and secret codes. One of his favorite codes involved Hindustani that was written in English characters, which, I mean, I'm not sure how that works, but he, he did it. The messages were rolled up into pellets and pressed into holes in a walking stick, and then the stick would be plugged with clay or soap. In fact, um, speaking of sticks, BP always said a man with a stick can basically do anything. I mean, he was well, like, oh. I, I think that's that's true. I carry a stick with me. <laughs> I mean, he was like MacGyver with a stick. It was. Yeah. OK, well, so these messages, they would sometimes be pressed into the bowl of a pipe underneath the tobacco. So once they were read, the message could be burned without suspicion. That's smart. Maps and codes were often disguised in BP's nature diagrams, like we talked about before. And Robert discovered that butterfly sketches were especially good for hiding information. When stationed, That's interesting. It is. It is. And um, up on our website, we're going to actually put some of these diagrams so you can see them. So when stationed in the Balkans, BP was heavily involved with defending Mifking during its 217-day siege during the Boer War. And because the Boer War comes up now and again, we're going to go over who they were. Right. And we're talking about the Boer War, not, yeah, the, not the war Boers with that, the Boers. <laughs> right. Not right. the war. Not the Boers with tusks. <laughs> right. That stab you. Right. Um, the Boers were actually in Africa before the British, mm -hmm. and they were of Dutch and German descent. And Boer means farmer in Dutch. This is, this is just an add-on so people know more stuff. They just get smarter <laughs> listening to us. And most of the people listen are thinking, I know what the boars are, you idiot. <laughs> like, and I can pronounce these words that you guys <laughs> yeah. are massacring. So you're condescending really idiot. Well, anyway, they controlled South Africa until Britain won the colony from the Dutch in the Napoleonic Wars. Now, Britain originally just wanted the colony because it would be useful for trade routes. So they just took kind of the tip of the bottom of south africa and use it just the tip just the, yep. just the tip Karen. and uh mm -hmm. but then the boars moved on and found golden diamonds and the british were like yeah we're uh -huh. going to expand our territory here what the eureka what they were not counting on was that the boars unlike the zulu wars and some of the other wars they had fought in africa they were guerrilla fighters. See, the, the British didn't learn this from the American Revolution. Um, they still were wearing their red uniforms and fighting in tight formations. Yeah, they were much more concerned about how they looked and how they presented 
more than winning. Often they were, I think, I think yeah. Because yes. these boars, mm -hmm. they, they were guerrilla fighters. They didn't wear uniforms. And they were excellent marksmen. I mean, they had to hunt. And you had one shot to get your wild boar or whatever you were going to eat that night. <laughs> the boars were getting bored. Yeah, and they were they were better. You know, they were, the British had cavalry. The boars mm -hmm. were better on horseback and better at firing from right. horseback than the British were. And, right. And if they saw bright red, like they, they yeah, knew they what didn't to really do, blend so. in on the no. on the plains of South Africa. No, they did not. Well, the impression that BP made during the Boer War gained him a really favorable reputation. And when BP returned home in 1903, he was surprised to discover that he'd become a national hero. Now, you you know how that feels, right, Chuck? To just unexpectedly become a national hero. See, I can only say a local hero, but, um, and, you know, <laughs> okay. but at the same time, BP did not have to contend with selfies. BP could eat his dinner and not have people coming up and wanting selfies. Oh, my word. Yeah. Nobody wants selfies with you, Chuck. Fine. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> I've, been, I've been to some podcast stuff where people do, in fact, want selfies. It's kind of. It's kind of gross, but anyway. Yeah, I BP think somebody's a wee tad <laughs> jealous, Karen. No, not at all. Um, he also discovered that the little book that he had penned for his soldiers had become a valued resource by educators that were teaching nature study and observation. So then, clubs and organizations sought out Robert Baden-Powell as a speaker, and during a boys' brigade meeting... The, the brigade founder, Sir William Smith, asked BP to put together a curriculum for both field training and good citizenship. This request led Robert to rewrite his initial aid to scouting and tailor it to a younger audience. In 1907, BP formed a camp built on the principles of the handbook, and the camp became immensely successful. As word about this spread, the sales of the scout guides skyrocketed. Groups of boys would gather to study the handbook. Suddenly, without ceremony or intent, the Boy Scouts were formed. In 1908, BP finally set up an office to deal with all the requests that were coming in. But he was also still commissioned to the service. He could only manage both jobs for two years. I mean, dude faced lions, yeah. but apparently he could only do this for two years. And in 1910... At the age of 53, BP retired in order to devote his time to the Boy Scout movement. Karen, who is this guy reminding you of? I have no idea. Hub McCann. This guy, I mean, he's oh, like, yes, he's fought yes, in wars all over Lions. Africa. Yeah, now he's yeah. starting the Boy Scout. I mean, he just is. what he's he did in his lifetime as a spy would, you know, get you into some kind of Hall of Fame. Yes. And now you've got the guy who started the Boy Well, a little tired of fighting lines, boars, wars. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, just going to start, start a national movement yeah. that lasts for, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's really good. If if people don't know who we're talking about when we say Hub McCann, we're talking about a character from the movie Secondhand Lions. That everyone it's should see. Bit, right. If you haven't seen it, it's in both of our, what, top three? Top, I mean, Oh, absolutely top three. It's it's a fantastic movie. So the success of the Boy Scouts inspired Baden-Powell to encourage his sister, you know, the one sister, her name was Agnes, to start the... Girl Scouts. I'll let you guess. That's right. 
And the female scouting movement began in 1909. And this was actually really central to the women's rights movement because, I mean, it was, it was a really big deal. At 55, Robert met and married the hardy and practical Olav Soames. Up to that point, there was, there's no record of any relationships with women, and some of BP's biographers believe he may have been gay and married Soames due to public pressure. Now, see, the guy's out fighting boars, he's fighting lions. But, he was just busy. But you know the one thing <laughs> that scared really know him? if he was or not. Getting married. Women. Women getting married. <laughs> he wasn't, you know, he well, was just like, no, I'll just fight the lion over here. I'll shoot myself in the leg. <laughs> one of his biographers did trace a, a really close friendship, but there, there's really no definitive information either way. But whatever it is, BP and Olaf made a strong partnership. She was 32 years his junior. And the two shared a birthday, February 22nd, which is now dubbed Thinking Day. World Thinking Day is celebrated by both Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts all over the world. The day began in 1926 when the Girl Scout delegates from all over the world met for their fourth annual meeting and agreed that there should be a day set apart to think of one another and how we can improve our world. Now, the Boy Scouts decided to do the same thing in order to support the Girl Scouts because of these. What's the average age of a Boy Scout? 11, 12, 13? <laughs> because, because the Girl Scouts did it. Yeah. Not because they wanted to make the world better. Right. Place. And at 11, 12, like, and 13, oh. girls are way smarter than boys. You know? <laughs> so, and I think that lasts until. Well, really, forever. forever? <laughs> yeah, forever. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean, the Boy Scouts just were like, yeah, this is something we can do with the Girl Scouts. So, yeah, let's do this, too. Well, that's that's, that's kind. I, I know that um, I've never fought a lion, but I guess you haven't either for that matter. I have not have fought you? a lion, no. Just, <laughs> like I said, just had a an encounter with a boar. Right, and, and a goose. <laughs> a goose. Olaf was heavily involved in her husband's work. As the couple helped raise children all over the world through the scouting, they also raised three of their own children, Peter, Heather, and Betty. BP ended his career the author of at least 32 books. He had honorary degrees from at least six formidable universities. Robert Baden-Powell was also given 28 foreign order decorations and 19 scout awards. Now, see, I don't think in you should really count the scout awards. Well, he was ahead I mean, of them. He was a guy handing out <laughs> the awards. It's like. <laughs> well, well, still, in 1938, Robert began to fall ill and he decided to go back to Africa, the continent that had always held his heart. He and Olaf lived in Kenya, where he continued to write, sketch, and teach whenever he could. On January 8, 1941, at the age of 83, BP drew his last breath. He was buried in a simple grave with Mount Kenya majestically rising up above a headstone, reading, Robert Baden-Powell, Chief Scout of the World. Robert Baden-Powell was a son a brother, a friend, a navigator, an artist, an actor, a soldier, a thoughtful commander, a master tracker, 
a fearless hunter, a humorist, and a leader of leaders. And he was a spy. If you would like to support the show, there are a few things you can do. You can become a sponsor on Patreon. You can find us there at Patreon under Spy Stories. You can share us on social media. You can share our episodes. You can retweet us on Twitter. You can join our Facebook group, Karen. Right. And that's at Spy Stories Podcast on Facebook. And to our patrons, I would like to say thank you. Yes, we appreciate you. The life of Robert Baden-Powell reminds us that we can be conduits between nature and society. If we stop our busyness and take the time to passionately study and breathe in the world around us, that passion will exude from us to ignite a spark in others. BP reminds us that we must learn in order to teach, and it is our obligation to do both. And as life shows us yet again that like Harriet the Spy says, life is hard, but a good spy gets in there and fights. And until next time, keep fighting. Thank you.